Inflation getting higher Makes it hard on the buyer Unemployment on the rise Gasoline issue filled with lies Rent being paid late Hello, um, welcome back. Um, so let's talk about The Affluent Society by John Kenneth Galbraith, um, at least the first half of it, but uh, we'll probably set up the overall argument here in this book. Um, this is, I think, one of his most well-known books, if not the most well-known book. It's the one that's, that's maybe most cited and most referenced just in popular conversations. It's also a term, The Affluent Society, that you see show up a lot in, in discussions of the 50s and 60s, this kind of golden age of, of American capitalism. But I think this book um, really has a lot to teach us because I think a lot of the fundamental truths that Galbraith points out in this book are, are still true. You know, things like the fact that we have largely, and you know, and increasingly, this is a global thing. When Galbraith wrote this, this was just an American thing or, or just in maybe a few places. But since then, you know, we've largely reached that place where the problem of production is, is not that relevant anymore. This fundamental problem of economics, this, that there's only so many resources to go around and therefore, you know, you have to base this distribution based on scarcity, right? And yeah, we're always going to have scarcity in some goods. I'm not saying that. But, you know, once you solve the problem of production, where basic necessities aren't there, where people's money is not being spent primarily on just the necessities of survival, this opens up all sorts of opportunities and challenges and, and you know, new, new approaches to distribution that didn't exist before. And, and yeah, some of these are problems, but they're, they're like the good problem, right? If, if the biggest problem you have is too much stuff uh, produced by private companies and, you know, and the biggest problem might be how you distribute that in a more equitable way or in a way that's more, you know, you have greater private public um, balance between spending. You know, that's a good problem because that means you have this wealth to invest in in things that are, you know, can make life better. So I, in the sense that this book explores what he doesn't ever call to post-scarcity, and I don't know if he would admit that post-scarcity ever did exist or, or does exist, but I'm going to use this term uh, as I talk about this book just because I think that's essentially what he's talking about. You know, and what does post-scarcity mean if not the solving of the problem of production? So I think this book has a lot to tell us. And even in some of his solutions to the, the good problems that emerge from post-scarcity, you know, these are solutions that I think we can learn from, whether it's reducing the work week, uh, greater public spending and, and quality of life things, libraries, roads, public health, whatever, um, or something like a UBI, reducing labor. These, these are all good ideas, I think, generally. Now we can debate, you know, how effective any of will be, but I think, you know, having a conversation based on the reality that we are producing more than we need for a good life. 
opens up all sorts of opportunities. So that's why I, I really do like this this book, and I think it's relevant to read and 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 think of, you know, as we try to address these these problems. So I'm just recording as I'm recording this. Uh, this is during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, oil prices have reached negative levels. Oil futures, anyways, are negative. You'll, I guess, get paid to take on a barrel of oil, largely because of overproduction and no means to store this. So the market for oil has fallen so much that it's basically free. Um, and I, at the time this happened, I was talking with my students, and one of them said something like, we were talking about migration or, or some issue in a geography class, and this student said, well, you know, he was kind of anti-immigrant, he's been almost all year, but, you know, he, he said something like, well, when immigrants come in, if they come in during a recession or a depression, they're going to take resources that could be used for someone else. And I thought at the time, you know, what do you, you know, what does he mean here by lack of resources? Um, Depressions are caused by a lack of resources. They're caused by too many, right? They're caused by overproduction and a shortage of demand. Um, and I thought of this issue of the oil, right? It's not that we can't produce oil. It's that we can't find buyers. We can't use what's being produced. And that's led, what's led to the collapse in the, the oil market. And yeah, I'm sure that will be rectified in at some point. And oil prices will quickly go up above zero. But the fact that this market is, is crashing is just a sign of of a kind of post-scarcity, right? But our problem is our, our economic logic is still rooted in this logic of scarcity, right? And I think this is, as much as we might like Adam Smith, as much as we might like Ricardo and learn from them and, and study them and, and, and find their work fascinating, it's kind of ridiculous that they're still the foundational texts of economics. You know, when I open up the AP economics textbook to read through, you know, I was thinking about you know, passing that on to my daughter at some point to study, you know, the first page is essentially about scarcity and the scarcity of resources. And, yeah, you know, maybe in some resources there is scarcity, rare metals or whatever, but that's not our primary problem. Our primary problem is is we're producing vastly beyond what what is necessity, right? And we're doing that at an incredible cost to the environment to our own psychological well-being, to our own families. You know, we have, we're working as long of hours as we were in 1950, maybe longer, and yet we're producing two, three times what we could produce back then per hour of work. So a decision was made not to invest that productivity into leisure, into higher wages, into more equitable societies, but rather, you know, to just produce more stuff, right? And when, and this is, you know, after Galbraith wrote this stuff, because Galbraith was writing at a time, I think, before consumer debt became as bad as it would become. You know, we, we, we fill in our need, you know, when wages are stagnant and we keep producing more, we, we make up that difference through debt. We see that in the vast amounts of consumer debt, credit card debt, student loan debt, and all these things. It's not that the money's not there to fund those things, you know, but to fund a basic decent quality of life for everyone, even a luxurious quality of life for, for most people, college, healthcare, all those things. It's, it's that we have this vast inequality that has basically forced people to partake in the affluent society via, via debt. So that's kind of new. That's something that comes after Galbraith wrote this. And even in his introduction, he doesn't quite talk about that. Um, but, you know, we got to historicize the book, I think, and understand what the time that the book was written in.
So, um, anyways, what do we got here? Let, let's start by looking at this introduction again. This introduction was written in when it's 40th anniversary edition, so it was written in the and the Affluent Society was written, I think, in the early 1960s. Now, 1958, so that's 1998, he, he wrote this introduction to the Affluent Society. Um, and he basically says, like, I don't disagree with anything, I, any of the big ideas, although he kind of says, oh, I corrected a few things, but there's a few things wrong here. Um, he does mention some changes, though, since that time, like the decline in unions, uh, the the fact that wages have basically only kept up with inflation and the increasingly weakness of the public sphere. But I think none of this undermines his argument anyway. It's still applicable, especially with the underinvestment in public spending and the, and the weakness in the public sphere and ideology and the fact that we still kind of live in an 18th century, you know, our, our economic thinking is still stuck in the 18th century. Uh, he also talks a little bit about environment here. So, um, yeah, I think uh, the introduction basically says this all is still in relevant, and I think it is. I think he's right about that. So in chapter one of the book, it's a quite short chapter. He just defines an affluent society for us. Um, and anyways, what it, what it comes down to is the fact that for most of human history, and here we maybe can't blame people for not fully understanding the world they live in because it is so new, you know, especially at the time that Galbraith was writing, this, this wasn't this affluent society is pretty new still. And we've been living in it for a while now, so it seems a little bit old hat in a way, but at the time he was writing, it was new. But for most of human history, um, and even at the time he was writing, in many parts of the world this was true, scarcity, poverty was, quote, the all-pervasive fact of the world. Um, but he adds after this, obviously it's not one of ours. Quote, one would not expect that the preoccupation of the poverty-ridden world would be relevant in one where the ordinary individual has access to amenities, foods, entertainment, personal transportation, and plumbing, in which not even the rich rejoiced a century ago. So great has been the change that many of the desires of the individual are no longer even evident to him." End quote. Now, of course, uh, this fact has been often cited by conservatives or people who are against redistributive policies under the language of like the rising tide lifts all boats, right? The fact that working class people live lives, you know, that are probably materially better than like an, a medieval noble, um, in some ways at least, not maybe in power and privilege, but, you know, just in material access to material goods, you know, that gets used to say, well, that's all due to capitalism and therefore, you know, be glad you have it and don't worry so much about inequality. Right. But I think Galbraith does a good job of saying that, wait a minute, this this affluent society has a whole new set of problems that can't be simply addressed by the old logic of economics and great opportunities. I think that's the most tragic thing about this is there was an opportunity to set policy, to make decisions that would have taken this immense productive capacity and turned it to much more humanitarian benevolent egalitarian policies and that just has not really happened but uh my point being that we can't blame people really for for the slowness in coming to terms with the affluent society you know it's like you know especially people in the 60s who remembered the great depression and remembered scarcity in that context even though that wasn't caused technically by scarcity it was caused by a lack of demand but on, in your day-to-day -day life you felt scarce right back to my student who thinks of depressions as a tragedy of, of scarcity of resources. You know, he just 
forgot that depressions are demand crises. Um, but if you're living in a depression, it certainly feels like things are lacking. Uh, mostly the money in your pocket. Um, he writes, for instance, uh, this is a good paragraph, actually. Uh, no student of social matters in these days can escape feeling how precarious is the existence of that which he, with which he deals. Western man has escaped for the moment the poverty which was for so long his all-embracing fate. The unearthly light at a handful of a nuclear explosion would signal his return to utter deprivation, if indeed he survived it at all. I venture to think that the ideas here offered bear on our chances for escape from this fate. Illusion is a comprehensive ill. The rich man who deludes himself into behaving like a mendicant may conserve his fortune, although he will not be very happy. The affluent country which conducts its affairs in accordance with rules of another and poorer age also foregoes opportunities. I think, yes, yes, that's the point, right? It's, you know, when we bicker about the budget deficit or the tax rate, you know, on the, on the billionaires, right? We are turning our back on opportunities to do things with that wealth that the working class has created that really could, you know, maybe do things we can't even imagine now, whether it's a green economy, you know, or things that people do imagine and fight for, like universal health care um, and, you know, just even just higher wages, right? A more just distribution of wealth. Um, but we missed a chance. And I, and I think Galbraith's work, even though successful and popular and often cited, largely failed because within a decade of it being written, you see this kind of conservative turn. Right? This, you know, it was really the late 60s that you had the last real push for social reforms. Right. You know, and maybe this work influenced the Great Society. I'm sure it did in some degree. But that was it. We got the Great Society, which was a half measure. Um, you know, but it was, I mean, it's notable as the last great time either major party in the United States envisioned substantial social change through redistributive policies. But, um, you know, that was the last time. And then for the next 50 years, it's been basically neoliberalism in various forms. And that was, that's all been a lost opportunity. Instead, we just shoveled money to the wealthy and created policies that, that shoveled money to the wealthy and, and entrenched all of these, all the things he talks about in this book. So in chapter two, it's called the concept of conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom essentially is what some people will time to time call basic economics. It's those first few pages of the AP history tech or AP economics book that I felt were all wrong, but they're real in the sense people believe them. Right. So he calls this the conventional wisdom, and it's essentially classical economics in various forms. Right. Or, or at least the conventional wisdom is that we live in a world of scarcity. Right. He's saying fundamentally we don't live in a world of scarcity. Or at least we don't live in a world in which the fundamental problem is, is one of production. Right. It's not our economic challenge isn't to make more TVs. It's to sell the TVs we have. Our farmers in America don't have the problem of how to make more grain or how to make more rice or how to grow more tomatoes or whatever. It's how do you find a market for an increasing amount of tomatoes, right? So you make 50 different types of ketchup and you, you know, tomato sauce or whatever, and you fill the stores with it. And, you know, and the result of that from the consumer's point of view is this cornucopia of, of options and choices that probably go beyond anything we can reasonably call need. But it's nice, right? If you like spaghetti like I do, you know, it's nice. 
but it's certainly not a problem of scarcity. So then he gets into his description of classical economics. This is the same thing he did in American Capitalism, the first book we looked at in this series. And so I don't need to rehash it too much, but he takes on Smith, Ricardo, and Malthus, all economic philosophers of, of great renown and, and interest, but all ones who essentially believe in, in scarcity, believe in that. Now, I, you know, I don't think Galbraith is a great writer here, but he has some really great moments, I think, and he's, he's capable of telling a good joke. Like, I like this one. Um, Quote, no society ever seemed to succumb to boredom. Man has developed an obvious capacity for surviving the pompous reiteration of the commonplace. End quote. I mean, what, you know, that is the, the basic economics, right? So anytime anyone says to you, you know, haven't you read it? basic economics? It's like, you know, whether you did or not, it's not relevant really to the world we live in. And it's, these aren't immutable rules. They, they're changed, right? Keynes showed that like our entire logic of the past has, has been wrong. And, and we need to change along with that, you know, just because that I, even if the ideas were right at the time, they're not right now. But the fact is we like the commonplace. We like the conventional wisdom. We like that security. And, and yeah, we're not going to get bored of things that make us feel comfortable and, and secure. So chapter three is called Economics and the Tradition of Despair. This kind of carries on the Ricardo, Smith, Malthus, um, logic in a little bit more detail. Um, you know, and he goes into the early industrialization, the end of artisan class, the rise of the factory, and the emergence of an, of an inevitable inequality, right? Obviously, in a situ situation of scarcity, inequality is un unavoidable to some degree and, and may be necessary, right? I think even Marx um, accepts this to some degree. And chapter four is more of this. It's called The Uncertain Reassurance. And this is, again, stuff you rehashing a little bit from the American Capitalism book. Basically here is this idea of, of, of competition as, as the, that point of security, that thing that will, that belief we have that gives us a feeling of reassurance about the way the world is. I really want to join this though to his first point in, in in American capitalism, that we all feel anxious despite living in pretty good times. And, you know, at the time, at least, we could say it was pretty good times. I think we're in a deep crisis now, part because we don't listen to people like Galbraith on some of these issues. But, you know, we, we feel this anxiety despite living in pretty good times. And why is that? Well, it depends on our political persuasion. It depends on our social point of view, why we feel that anxiety. But, you know, it's, it's rooted in this idea that or it's rooted in like a gut feeling that the competitive model doesn't exist anymore, right? And here he kind of paints it as like that last bastion of reassurance, right? Um, he, he writes about this. Uh, to the lingering fear that poverty might be normal, the increasing conviction that inequality was inevitable and the sense of individual insecurity, which was inherent in the competitive model, the orthodox view of the business cycle added a much more general sense of disquiet. This was the insecurity of the householder who was told that in the normal and regular course of events, he must expect his house to catch fire and his property be partially or wholly destroyed. The fire cannot be prevented or arrested for it has its work to do. To call for the fire department is to invite an attempt to drown the flames by drenching them with gasoline. Um, and what I think he's getting at here is that, you know, there is some security maybe in 
some ennui about the inevitability of collapse, right? And I, or, or what I want to say is like, if you accept the classical model, you accept of, of economic thinking based on inequality and scarcity and, and the problem of production, then the problems that come from overproduction can be explained just as well. You know, you can still go back to the basic economics argument and try to explain all of those things. And that, even though it's kind of tragic and brutal and, and, and horrendous to realize that, yes, every few years there's going to be an economic collapse or something, but it's, it's comforting in its sort of regularity to it. But it's all blinkering us from seeing the reality of the world we live in, which is one of affluence. So then in chapter five, it's called The American Mood. He just talks a little bit about the American contribution to economic thinking in the 19th and 20th century. He doesn't have much to say. He, he mentions Henry George um, and Veblen, and, and he kind of admits Americans haven't really contributed their own original economic thinking. And I, I think he's right about that. And I think it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit sad because had they done that, you know, had there been thinkers understanding the American situation better, maybe they would, there wouldn't be this tendency to sort of just embrace these 18th century British thinkers, or even worse, like the Hayek's and the, the Austrian school. Um, maybe there would be a more American, democratic, egalitarian economic philosophy out there, right? I mean, Henry George, of course, you know, envisioned a more egalitarian society. Uh, Veblen, of course, uh, in his book uh, on conspicuous consumption, attacked, it's called the theory of the leisure class, by the way, he attacks kind of the overspending by the elite and tries to understand why that is and explains it as a phenomenon resulting from, from the desire to show off one's wealth. Um, it's almost like a psychological thing. I think it's a good book because it's one of the first to actually lay out our psychological motivations for economic decision something I think any we should take for granted now <laughs> the fact that we're not really rational actors right um, you know there's no rational reason to spend 10 times as much for a car that doesn't do that much different than a than a cheap little Kia but you know he he mentioned some of the American influences to the economic tradition but he, he kind of says well there's not that much that Americans have actually said here uh, and it's a pity at least I think it's a pity. Then we have the Marxist pal. That's chapter six. And this is, it's kind of continuing this survey he gives. Of, actually, the first six chapters actually are a survey of economic thinking. And this one goes into Marxist thinking. Um, and he does a pretty good job, actually, I think, of introducing Marxism, um, which tries to explain, of course, the business cycle in, in terms of overproduction and declining rates of profit all of which I think are really particularly relevant to the affluent society, more so than the classical economists. And although he's not a Marxist, he does have to, and he does, admit, you know, if Marx had been 100% wrong about everything, he wouldn't have been as popular and his influence wouldn't have been as broad as it is. Marx is appealing because he was right about so much. And even Galbraith admits that here. And again, not a Marxist, but... You know, I'm sure people accused him of that at various times. Um, so with chapter seven, we start to get into his description of 
of the affluent, especially six and seven, or sorry, chapter seven and eight, he starts to get into his description of the affluent society. First in a chapter called inequality, and second a chapter called economic security. These are chapter seven and eight. And in the chapter of inequality, he he doesn't say that. Well, I mean, the point here is that all economic thinking up to this point has rested on this idea of the inevitability of inequality. In fact, almost the downsides of equality. Quote, inequality has come to be regarded as almost equally important for capital formation. Where income equally dis widely distributed, it would be spent. But if it flowed in a concentrated stream to the rich, a part would be saved and invested. And he'll go back into some detail about the investment savings problem. You know, it's a little bit more uh, wonky type of writing, um, but he does a pretty good job of explaining that that issue to, to readers and why it's not as much of a problem in a culture of affluence as it would have been in 18th century England. But it's just, just another idea where the conventional wisdom has endured for so long that it's distorted our, our thinking and limited our imagination for alternatives. Basically, the liberal attitude towards inequality as inevitable and basically a good thing has endured. Um, but then he says, wait, you know, the world we live in, it, we're seeing reductions of inequality, right? And you can point all sorts of reasons to that. The New Deal, World War II, um, redistributive policy, Social Security, whatever, or just overall affluence. But yes, inequality at the time was decreasing. Um, but since Galbraith wrote this, it's increased quite a lot. Um, and that, that, I think, is something we should maybe talk about, maybe in the next episode. But I, I kind of want to stick to the text a little bit. But, you know, it's hard to... You know, it's hard not to see this book as a little bit dated because he does not fully appreciate how an affluent society can also be framed by vast, vast inequality. It's just something he wasn't, he's, in his historical position, he couldn't have seen it. And so we can't really blame him for it. And even if inequality exists, he writes, it's, it, it has become a bit un invisible or hidden, right? In certain sectors, or it's harder to see just in the, glamour of the affluent society. But he gets to the big point here, and that is, what do you do when you have when you have affluence? Well, one solution is just socialism, right? Redistribution, get rid of inequality. You, you have enough wealth to do that, right? There's plenty of stuff to go around. There's no reason anyone doesn't need, can't have education, healthcare, a car, a TV, all those basic necessities of, of life, whatever they may be. Um, but if you're not going to do that, if you don't want to go full socialist, um, what can you do? Well, you, you're going to have all this extra production, so you can just reinvest that in even more production. Quote, in an advanced country, in contrast, increased production is an alternative to redistribution. And as, in, as indicated, it has been the great solvent of these tensions associated with inequality. Even though the later persists, the awkward conflict, which is corruption implies, can be avoided. How much better to concentrate on increasing output? a program in which both rich and poor can agree since it benefits both, unquote. So yes, it, it becomes a way of not dealing with redistribution, but you can say, yeah, we're not going to redistribute incomes, but, but here's an iPad, right? And not only that, everyone in your family can have an iPad, right? And, and, and you have internet, you know, it'll be expensive, but you can have internet in your household too. And now we have uh, Netflix. So each of you can, can basically watch your, your own, you know, the, you know, the own TV you like, and you can all live in your own kind of media bubble. And that's great, right? And so we don't have to deal with inequality because 
everyone's doing a little bit better because of increased production. And that's, you know, not entirely a bad thing, right? I'm not saying those things are bad. It's just for Galbraith, he thinks there, you end up with kind of a misdistribution of funds. He describes it at one point as, as living in a world in which you have, you know, 50 types of soda on the store shelf in potholes or your library is being shut down or, you know, the schools suck, right? It's this misappropriation of the wealth of the society into more production rather than to other things that that maybe aren't as glamorous, but might have more positive benefits for society overall, like schools. That's the thing he kind of clings to, schools. But in our own era, we could pick what do we want, green economy or universal health care or whatever. So economic security, the chapter eight, uh, this, again, this kind of goes back to American capitalism in that book, and he doesn't really develop that argument too much. And he basically says here he's concerned with economic security for firms, right? And and how that le leads to sort of monopolies in huge firms, basically pushing the direction of consumption and production. Well, con production first. And then, of course, once you produce things, you need to convince people to buy it. And that requires creating a market, you know, advertising, or I guess is the, the most common way to think about that. But you have to create the market for what you're going to produce. Why? Because you don't want to take risks, right? So I think that's another kind of where, way he, he points out that the classical model doesn't really work in, the, in, in, in our contemporary society, namely that, namely that competition, the perfect liberal model of, of competition, no producer and no consumer can influence the market. That's how he defines it. That's super insecure for firms, you know, because there's no guarantee that the goods you make will be sold. There's no guarantee that that you'll make profit year, year in year in and year out. So you hedge your bets. And one way to do that is monopoly. One way to do that is oligopoly. One way to do that is by focus on production and then spending vast resources to ensure that you have a market for those those goods. Um, and another place that's, that you can create security is by continuing to increase um, production. So that's uh, the, what you know, and that's what investments in works. So, uh, you know, production becomes the solution to inequality. It becomes a solution to security. And because of that, it's, it's the central fact of American economic life production. Again, not a bad thing. It's good we have all this stuff to a certain degree, but not if it's at the expense of other necessities. Uh, to quote him, production has become the solvent of the tensions once associated with inequality, and has become the indispensable remedy for its discomforts, anxieties, and privations associated with economic insecurity. Here we have the explanation, or more precisely, the beginning of the explanation of the modern paradox. Why is it that as production has increased in modern times, concern for production seems to have also increased? Production has become the center of the concern that has hitherto been shared with equality and security. For those reasons and, and supported, we shall see by the eloquently synthetic reinforcement, it has managed at least superficially to retain the prestige which, which inevitably it had in the poor world of Ricardo." End quote. So actually, if you look back at it, you got, you got nine, eight chapters here, the whole first third of the book, more or less, that essentially describe the atavism of 
of economic thinking in America and, and how, despite the fundamental change, the creation of an affluent society, despite that, this atavism is, intellectual atavism is very, very strong. So this is followed by another sort of paired chapters, nine, the paramount position of production, and 10, the imperative of consumer demand. And I'll take these sort of together because they, they do go together. Essentially, we've already established why production, in his view, has become the dominant economic force in American life. Um, but that's tied to the other side, which is if you're going to produce these goods, they have to be sold. So consumer demand becomes the central um, economic challenge is ensuring and maintaining a high level of consumer demand. And this helps, I think, explain the popularity of Keynesian thought in, in the time period that Galbraith was, was writing. It's, you know, as much as, you know, supply side economics wants to, you know, denounce Keynesian thinking, you know, even if you kind of go at it from a supply side point of view, you still have the problem of consumer demand to deal with. And it has to be sustained or invented. And the only economist, you know, of that time that really clearly influenced thinking on this said you got to increase demand artificially if necessary by government spending so you know it's ultimately it comes down to demand one way or another right whether you believe economic growth follows the demand curve like i do or you believe that just you know it you should throw all the money to the producers um the way neoliberals have done but you know, even if you accept that, you still have to have the consumers. And that's going to require, you know, your $1,200 stimulus check in, in times of economic crisis. Now, especially in this chapter, chapter nine, the paramount position of production, he goes into the, the well, we sort of already know the how or, or the reason why, not, not the how. I mean, we, are, we already got into the why. He explains why production is paramount. But what is the consequence of that? Well, the consequence of that is, it increased in production, obviously. And he goes into the different ways it can be produced, whether it's investment of capital, increasing the labor supply, uh, technology, um, better organization of labor and capital, you know, and those kinds of things. And he describes how all these things are, are actually happening, or actually happened in, at the time he was writing it. Now, he makes a very, very interesting um, contribution here, I think, to the supply-demand side economics debate in saying, you know, if demand wasn't a problem, you wouldn't have so much focus on creating consumer demand in advertising, right? If every good produced by, by producers was an absolute essential, you know, there wouldn't need to be advertising. People would just buy, like food, right? Food producers generally don't have to advertise. You know, farmers don't have to advertise to sell grain. There's a market for that, right? Um, it's only when, like, was it milk? People aren't buying as much milk, so the milk producers get together and run their ads saying why milk is so great for you. But in the normal circumstances, necessities of life don't need, don't need advertising. But uh, it's, it's, it's pairing of this obsession with production with the, almost ne the necessity of then obsessing about how those goods will be consumed. And that leads us into chapter 10, the imperatives of consumer demand. And this gets into um, all sorts of interesting theories and, and thoughts about consumer demand, where it comes from. Um, he talks a little bit about mar like marginal, diminishing marginal utility, which is a fascinating idea. It's like, that's like your first car, 
incredibly useful, but your tenth car, you know, it's not quite as useful as the first car, right? And this is especially true with, necess with necessities. Basically, it doesn't apply to necessities because no one buys, even like the wealthy hoarders, <laughs> don't buy like 20 times the amount of bread they need to survive, right? Maybe they buy really good bread or really fancy expensive bread at French bakeries or whatever, but they don't, you know, buy one-tenth of the bread they need each day, right? So in necessities, this really doesn't apply. But when you're talking about an affluent society in which most things being produced aren't really necessities, then you get this problem of diminishing marginal utility in which convincing someone to buy one TV is one thing, but convincing them to buy a second or third or fourth becomes more and more difficult because they don't have a clear utility to consumers. Now, one solution to this seems to be uh, satisfaction. He writes here, um, at the more elementary levels of economic analysis, it's assumed that while the marginal utility of the individual good declines in accordance with the indutable law, the utility or satisfaction from a new and different good is not lower than that from the initial units of those proceeding. So two solutions here. One is focus on the satisfaction, focus on the experience, the pleasure, the aesthetics of it, or create a new good that, that is different enough to create a new utility. Right, so you have your laptop, your iPad, and the cell phone. All that can do the same things, but they're all sold as separate, like devices with different, you know, functions. Even though they're basically the same, at the end of the day, uh, that's one solution to it. But another bigger one, I think, especially when he gets into advertising, he's going to focus on this: is the intense focus on on manufacturing a market. And chapter 11, the dependence effect, then goes into another important concept in this overall theory, which is the manufacturing of, of, of wants, manufacturing of, of even needs. Um, he writes, for instance, quote, were it so that a man on arising each morning was assailed by demons, which instilled in him a personal desire for silk shirts, sometimes for kitchenware, sometimes for chamber pots, and sometimes for orange squash, there would be every reason to applaud the effort to find the goods, however odd, that quenched that flame. But should it be that his passion was a result of him first having cultivated the demons, and should it also be his effort to allay it, stir the demons in an ever greater and greater effort, there would be a question as to how rational was the solution. Unless restrained by conventional attitudes, he might wonder if the solution lay with more goods or fewer demons. So it is that if production creates the wants it seeks to satisfy, or if the wants emerge pari passu with the production, then the urgency of the wants can no longer be used to defend the urgency of production. Production only fills a void that it has itself created. The point is so central that it must be pressed. Consumer want can have bizarre, frivolous, or even immoral origins, and an admiral case can still be made for the society that seeks to satisfy them. But the case cannot stand if it is in the process of satisfying those wants that create the wants." End quote. So I guess... Uh, What's like, take opioids, right? There's a legitimate need for drugs to reduce pain, right? But to then manufacture a market where you get millions of people addicted to it when they don't need it and, you know, create black markets and heroin or whatever, that it becomes immoral, right? Um, or just as, I think his more straight up point is that if the only reason we have a want is because it's been inculcated into us through advertising and the media and the sellers themselves pushing it, 
then even it, you know it's it's there's kind of a, a questionable morality to that and i think this is maybe where some people might criticize him kind of moralizing wants a little bit but i, I do think that he does say that you know immoral wants or needs are not in themselves bad it's that when it's the producer basically constructing the want that you get a more dubious theory or you get a more dubious uh, morality to it. <clears throat> and I guess I'll be it today. Um, I think I've kind of set up one half of his argument, which is the affluent society um, as not being in, in sync with the economic conventional wisdom. And then this pairing of, of an obsession with production within a necessity for consumption, which ultimately results in a manufactured type of uh, manufacturing of wants. So in the next episode, I will finish up my thoughts about John Kenneth Galbraith's The Affluent Society by looking at some of the economic consequences of this on prices, on money, on on that. But ultimately, the real heart of what I want to talk about next time is the imbalance between the public um, and private spending and some of Galbraith's solutions to it because I think they're the most relevant for us today. So anyways, that's my, uh, my speed uh, read through the first half of The Affluent Society by, by Galbraith. Really useful book. I think I, I can't recommend this one enough. If you're going to read one of these four books, I think that one is probably the best to sink your teeth into. So um, that's it. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about these very, very interesting and relevant uh, ideas. So um, but that'll be it for now. The question is all a game. Either way is still the same. Schools are crying too. They can't do the job they want to do.